All right. Okay, so we're discussing love that is in, hidden in one's brain and recess of one's heart. So um, spoke about, yesterday we spoke about there were three levels of where the contemplation actually would affect the person. Level number one, if you recall, is where sense that you come to terms with the reality of Hashem and His infiniteness. Um, but that's more of an acceptance. Then, is it, then the, the contemplation actually affects a change in what you desire, what you feel, what you want, and eventually it becomes a full-fledged experience. And we're talking about how it gets stuck between the second stage and the third stage, right? So if we spoke with the idea of love in the mind, reading that my mind has come to a decision, a sense that yes, it is good to be close to God. God is, 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 is an important thing that I should have in my life. That is, my mind has become convinced of that. So that is emotional in the sense it's similar to an emotion, but it's not really an emotion. It's really an intellectual conviction, a conclusion that your mind has reached. So that's the love hidden in one's brain. Now, what does it mean, the recesses of your heart? Um, so we start off the chapter, spoke about how the mind governs the heart. Recall that? Okay. And so we spoke about how the heart is receptive to the mind. Okay, so if you kind of think of a teacher and a student, okay? So the recesses of the heart is the part of our emotional space, life, or part of the emotional part of our psyche, which is open, which is receptive to the messages of the mind, okay? So I wanna go back to yesterday and, and um, I, I picked, the end of the day I picked an example to explain the idea of how like your mind can reach a conclusion and that creates like an impasse in conversation. Um, and I use the example of abortion simply because it, it, it actually works as a very good analogy for this. If you are still in the headspace where you see the complexity of the issue, okay, as a general rule, do you feel emotionally strongly one way or the other about it? But you see on the one hand, there's like the issue of autonomy, and the other hand is the issue of the value of life, the protecting of the innocent, right? The, 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 the sense of undue burden. All, you, you see all these different things in conflict. You understand them, and it's not simple, and you, right? If you're in that headspace, are you gonna be very emotional one way or the other about this issue, right? In fact, you may come off to someone seeming very detached. Now, is that because you're really detached and indifferent? You're very engaged, but you're engaged with it in its full complexity. And here's the thing about our emotions. Our emotions do not relate to complexity. The part of our heart that is receptive to the mind is, simple, is, is simplistic. It needs a simple message to, to respond to, right? So that's why you have two people They might have very different outlooks, but as long as they're in that kind of place of appreciating the complexity, they can communicate, they can talk, and they can have what we call a civilized conversation. The minute a person forms a pretty strong opinion one way or the other in their mind, that's something that the emotional life, the heart, can pick up on. And so what happens very quickly is once that becomes your opinion, you become emotional about that opinion. That's why right, it's not just that you're intellectually not communicating, but actually it can become a very unpleasant thing. It's not just not productive conversation. It's actually people just start becoming like genuine emotional conflicts with each other. That makes sense? 
So what you have is, you have within our emotions, you have these two aspects. There's the part of the emotion which is receptive, it's open to the messages of the mind. And there's the other part of the emotions which is like the intense visceral experience. We're gonna call that the inner part of the emotion and the outer part of the emotion. The inner part of the heart and the outer part of the heart. Okay? Why are we gonna call it the inner part and the outer part? There's a general rule that in Hasidus, when we talk about the outer aspect of something, we talk about how it manifests, how, how, it, how, it dem- how it presents itself. So when you're emotional, how does that manifest? It manifests itself, manifests itself physically. We spoke about this last week. But the inner part of something is more getting at the core essence of what is it, what is it really. If I think about what is an emotion, an emotion is how you feel about something, right? So in the emotion, there is a sense of what is the something, right? right? For instance, I feel angry about this thing. Now, do I feel angry about the thing itself or do I feel angry about its wrongness? Which one? So a sense of the wrongness is part of the emotion. It's a critical part of the emotion, right? If I love something, do I love it or do I love its, I'll use the old word just because I want to, but do I love its loveliness? Right, we would call it, we think that it was, you know, it's lovability, what makes it lovable. Okay, but, um, there was a, there's a non-Jewish philosopher who said that an important part in life is to be lovely. And what he meant was to be the kind of person that people can love. Right? Well, we would say lovable. Right? So in your emotion, there's a sense of the object of your emotion, what your emotion is directed at that came from the mind. But it's not a sense of that object and what it truly is in all of its complexity. It's a sense of the emotionally relevant, the emotionally resonant aspect, that part that was kind of the emotional part of the intellect. Right? So if my mind has become convinced that something is wrong, it's the wrongness that my mind has become settled on that actually settles into the inner part of the heart and that forms the disdain, the uh, abhorrence that then is experienced can be very viscerally, very intensely. And then with a positive thing, right? The, 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 the beauty of something or the lovability of something settles in the heart and it's that, so what you, what you, your experience of love is the desire for what's lovable or your wonder in what's beautiful, right? That's, and then that, if it's intense enough, is experienced physically as a, as a real emotional experience. So the inner part of the heart is the kind of the content of the emotion. What is it that, what do I feel and towards what? I love what's lovable, I hate what's hateful, I desire what's desirable, right? That kind of an experience is it the inner part of the heart? And then the actual physicality is the external part of the heart. Okay, are we on the same page with that? Okay, so what are we describing happening? That the person's contemplated the greatness of Hashem and they have become convinced in their mind, as the expression goes, um, it is good for me to be close to God. They become convinced of that. That basic sense, it is good for me to be close to God, is something that, doesn't have to stay in the mind, that's something that can be received by the heart. And when the heart has that sense that it's good for me to be close to God, that's not just an intellectual position, that's just an, not just an opinion, that becomes an actual desire. I just figured out what we desire now. <laughs> I don't know. You can't really talk and eat at the same time. <laughs> the bane of being the speaker at a Fabrengen is there's all this food in front of you and you just have to keep talking. And if you ever stopped to put stuff in your mouth, everyone just like waiting. And it's like, it feels awkward. 
So you need food that you can like chew very quickly and swallow. <laughs> Fine. Okay. So. Okay. So. So which part of the mind can the heart receive? That the, the, the in other words, the emotional part of the mind is received what's by what's called the intellectual part of the heart. Okay. In other words, like this. Yesterday we spoke about how like, when you form a strong opinion in your mind, that's like, it's emotional sense, it's like an emotion, but it's really intellectual. In your emotion, the sense of, I feel this way towards this because this is the, because you know, I, I love this thing because it's lovable. I hate this thing because it's hateful, right? That sense of things is almost like a perception, almost like an awareness of reality. In that sense, it's kind of like intellectual, but it's not intellectual, it's, it's the emotional experience. So when I'm, for instance, when I feel disgust towards something, my disgust entails two elements. My feeling of disgust and my sense of how disgusting it is. Almost, it feels like the same thing. So the way, the way to see this, how it's, how it's not exactly the same thing, is to think about it like this. Okay. Sometimes when you have an immature emotion, you can feel one way but there's no object. For instance, have you ever, have you ever um, felt just like irritable, but, you didn't, but if someone asks you what's irritating, you have no idea of what's irritating, okay? Or can, conversely, can you have a sense that something is really wrong without actually being upset about it on any level? So it's like, yeah, that is absolutely wrong, 100%, that's wrong, and it just doesn't bother you, right? So there is this, there is this they're very similar because they're both kind of this just like kind of kind of like core conclusion, but you could have it that's the core conclusion of the mind, or that's like a very conscious emotion. It could be, a, in other words, it could be like I am. Yes, I reached a conclusion. This is absolutely wrong. So think of a judge. When a judge can, says someone is guilty of a crime, we would expect, we would hope that they are not emotional. They just you, what you've done is wrong. What you've done is abhorrent. Right? And I, but, but it stops here. I'm not getting emotional about it, right? I don't feel, right, and this is, I would say this is actually maybe a little bit not true in the way American courts work, but, but the, idea, the idea is that, that someone who is passing judgment in a kind of a legal setting, right, should not feel any, any negativity towards the person they're, they're convicting of the crime and the person they're punishing because it's a matter of the principles of justice and rightness and wrongness and it's not, I'm not, I'm not it's not me. They're just like, I'm not me. It's, it's not about me. It's not how about how I feel at all. This is all emotions or this is like um, a specific type of emotions? Where so this is emotions that are produced in a way that is con- consistent with how the godly soul operates. Human emotions are incredibly complex <laughs> and I don't want to go to say that every emotional experience we have fits this model. But if you're producing emotions regarding Hashem through contemplation, it follows this kind of a model. Okay. So what happens is that in the mind you come to this kind of clear conclusion that that not an appre- not an appreciation of the complexities and richness of Hashem's greatness, just kind of the bottom line. It is good to be close to Hashem. It is good to have attachment to Hashem. It is bad to be missing Hashem in your life. That conclusion, which is the emotional part of the intellect, becomes the like underlying perception and awareness in the emotional experience of a desire to be close to Him. So you have what the, the expression that's used is that the, the emotional part of the intellect becomes like the intellectual part of the emotion. 
which sounds like doublespeak, but again, if you think about what it means, it's really not. Okay? And very often, by the way, our emotions get out of hand when we just feel annoyed, but we have no sense of what's annoying. Right? When we feel desirable, we have no sense of what's desirable. Right? A mature human emotion contains both the experience of desire and a sense of what's desirable, a sense of hate and a sense of what's hateful. Do you have an immature emotion for God? Absolutely. But that doesn't come through contemplating his greatness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's chapter 18. It talks about that. Can you repeat what you said about the emotional part? About when you, have an emo- when, you have an em- when you have a mature emotion, every mature emotion has two elements to the experience. There's a sense of how I feel and what I'm feeling towards. I'm feeling hate towards this hateful thing. But again, you're not feeling hate towards the thing itself, but towards its hatefulness. You're feeling desire towards its desirability. You're feeling love towards its lovability. You're feeling wonder towards its wonderness. You're feeling enchantment towards its beauty. Any mature emotion has both an, a sense of your, how you feel, but a sense of the object towards that feeling. But it's not the object itself. It's some, some aspect. That aspect was something that was settled on your mind. That was the emotion and the, of the intellect. But now it becomes the intellectual, the, the awareness part of the emotion. And so that's how you have what's called the love that's the, in, in, hidden in the brain and the love that's in the hidden recesses of the heart. That's not the same thing as the actual physical experience of emotionality, such as the, the, you know, the anxiety or the rush that you get when you're in love. Like that's, the, that's the external part of heart. That's the physicality of it. Okay? And so our discussion here is what happens. This person contemplates, contemplates, and they get, they have a real intellectual conclusion. It really, they are convinced closeness to God is good. It's good, it's good for me, it's real, it's important, it's what matters. And that sense of, of God being good and being close to God being good for them is, is, has become a sense of what makes God lovable. And so they feel a sense of desire for Hashem. But it stays where it stays in the hidden recesses of the heart. It never becomes like, really visceral, really physical, emotional experience. Okay. What? So the question Altrimus wants to discuss is how bad is that? And if it is bad, like, is there a problem? Like, is there a way to solve that? Without truly solve, is there a way to work around that? Okay. So now, um, what he now goes on to say is he has to flesh that out what, what that actually means. That is to say, the heart comprehends with the spirit of wisdom and understanding of the brain, the greatest of the Ain Sof, blessed is he, in relation to all else is absolutely no reality. Okay. So let, what, is he, what, is the, what is the person contemplating? What is the person realizing? That Hashem is so great, he is the only thing that has significance and everything else is insignificant compared to Hashem. Is that the intellect or is that the emotions of the intellect? Is that the, 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 the idea with all of its, the reality of all of its complexity or is that kind of the takeaway conclusion? Which one is that? Contemplating and coming to a sense that Hashem is absolutely important and nothing else is important in comparison to it. What? It's intellectual. What? It's not an emotion yet. It's, it's not, intellectual. It's intellectual. Is it the emotion and the intellect or is it just intellect? Just, no. Just intellect. It's just intellect. You keep reading, you'll see. For which reason it is due unto him, blessed be he, that every, the soul of every living thing creature should yearn for him. That's the, That's the emotion. When you reach the conclusion, if Hashem is so absolutely important that nothing else matters, then what should be the desire of every living thing? The only desire that makes is any way sensible is desire for him. 
Now, what does it mean to desire him? This we have to, I'm going to read this quickly. Maybe we'll come back to it. The desire for him is to be absorbed in his light. Likewise, it is fitting for the nefesh and the ruach. These are different levels of spirituality. I don't want to go into them. Within him to, la- to languish for him with a fervent desire to emerge from their sheath, which is the body order cleave to him. Okay? So if a person has contemplated Hashem's greatness, what's the emotional takeaway? Responsibility. Is that... So this is... This is a, why do you say responsibility? Well, like he feels an emotional responsibility with that knowledge to therefore cleave to him. That's a response... You, you, one second. Self-imposed responsibility. <clears throat> I'm really uncomfortable calling it a responsibility. Because if it's a responsibility, it seems that it's entirely... Um, imposed from without. So you can't do an internal... You can't do it... Yeah, what, what, the reason I think is like this. Let me give you the following thing. And, and tell me if you would... Okay, let's say you're a parent. And you think about the fact that you're a parent and there's a child, the child depends on you. And let's say it's a difficult child. Some children are very difficult. The child really depends on you and you know, they really need you physically, emotionally for their well-being and like, and you come to realize that. Is that different from looking at your child and developing a sense of the value of their life and then feeling that you need to be there for them? Are those different? You see what I'm saying? Like one is like there's a fact. The fact is there is a child. The child is helpless, and you're the parent. And therefore, like what the child needs, assuming you can provide it, you have. A, and I would use the word responsibility to provide, right? But and so that goes back to like that first level. There's an acceptance of things, right? But there's something very different when you look into a child and you can see that you know the 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 the. the The, the, the infinite value through their eyes, right? That, 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 that this, this child's life, right? And that pulls at you to, you feel that you need to be the best parent for them that you can, right? That's very different. It's, it's not, I, if you want to call that responsibility, I don't want to play a semantics game. I just want to make sure we're clear it's, it, that that's different than the first description, right? This is not saying, oh, I've come to really the reason that it's like, you know, it would be right in some sort of like, principled sense of everything desired God. It's more of a sense of like, you've, just, you've come to a sense that nothing, it, no, to you, no desire makes sense other than a desire for God. I remember being, being younger and um, I, I never had an issue with drugs. And the reason why I never had an issue with drugs was very simple. Um, I just thought taking drugs seemed rather stupid. Um, if you don't, and so it seemed like, like why would you do that? Okay. Is that because I was a principled anti-drug person? No. It just seems like, what's the appeal? Are we describing the person realizing a conclusion that it is morally or religiously necessary to love God, to desire to cleave to God? Or the person has kind of got to a point like the only thing that makes sense to them as having any appeal is God. You see the, you see the difference? It, the altar of his son, the Mittler, actually develops this at great length, that this is, this is a personal investment, right? So when it says here um, that it is due to him, it's not like a sense of obligation and duty. It's a sense of like, 
that absolute value in Hashem pulls at your mind so deeply, so profoundly, this is the conclusion that you, you reach. This is the only thing that resonates with you. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of details there, to, but, but the basic takeaway is to yearn for Hashem, to have fervent desire for Hashem, to leave the body in order to cleave to Him, whatever that means, except that they dwell perforce in the body and are bound up to it like deserted wives. Okay, that's an uplifting thought. <laughs> okay. Okay. What is a deserted wife? So we understand the analogy and then we can... What is a deserted wife? So in halacha, um, marriage is a legal status that can only end upon one of two conditions. What are the two conditions? Anyone know? Not covered hair. No, that does not end a marriage. She burns food. That does not end a marriage. Can get children? Those are justifications where the, for the husband to end the marriage without having to compensate his wife the ksuba money. Um, but those do not end the marriage. Get. A get, which is or a bill of divorce, or the death of the husband. There, there's, a, there's a good story. which I, I don't know the source of the story, but it's one of these stories that's true that may have happened. Um, what? So there was a famous rabbi named Rabbi Kiva Eger, who was the rabbi, I believe, in Posen. At that time, it was a believing part of Germany, but I don't remember. Um, and he was, he, was a, he was a very great rabbi. Um, and there was a Jew who had left Judaism and become, I think, even converted to Christianity and got in government position, and he never divorced his wife. And so Rabbi Kiva Eger summoned him to the basin that you have to give your wife a, a, a get, a real divorce. And um, he refused. He was quite antagonistic. And Rabbi Kiva Eger told him that the Mishnah says that a woman... Um, is released from marriage in one of two conditions, under one of conditions, either with a get, the bill of divorce, or the death of the husband. And this, your wife is entitled to be released from this marriage. This is like not an appropriate marriage. And so he says, well, I'm not giving a get. And so he says, well, but there's only two ways, a get or the death of the husband. And so he says, are you, are you threatening me? You dare threaten me? I'm an important government official. You can't threaten me. And he storms out of the basin. Oh, sorry. And Rabbi Kiva Eger says, I'm not threatening, I'm just telling you that, that the Torah says these are the only two ways and your wife is entitled to be out of this marriage. And he gets very upset. He storms out of the basin. The basin was on a second story of the, of the building. And as he storms out, he trips down the stairs and breaks his neck and dies. Oh. <laughs> because he had two choices. <laughs> of course, not every rabbi has that kind of, you know, spiritual influence. But okay. Um, so what happens if a husband disappears without evidence of his death or without giving his wife a bill of divorce? Is she married? She said no. She's what? She got married. Is she married? No. No. What? No. She, if her husband disappears, there's no evidence of his death. His if, her, if, there, if there's no evidence of his death and she didn't receive a get, is she married? Yes. She is married. Halachically. In practice, what is her life like? Like that of a? Yeah. A widow. Right. The actual term is, is the actual Hebrew term is amonis chais, living widows. Widows of living husbands, meaning on a, soci, on a social level, she's like a widow. Someone who had a husband and husband's gone. But on a lachic level, she's still married, right? Is that a good positive state to be in? No. No. Why are we comparing the soul to that?
when the soul is an emotion, you know, where this appeals to Hashem is like a deserted life. Right, because the soul desires to be where? And, and does the soul have any access? No, because the soul's trapped in the body, right? So what is, the, this person has started to develop a sense that their life, right, this is the level of contemplation, right? It's like, okay, Hashem is, is so important. Everything else is meaningless compared to Hashem. That's, you contemplate the greatness. To the point you come to the conclusion that the only thing that's really desirable is Hashem. Right? The only way to get Hashem is to, quote, cleave to Him, whatever that means. And cleaving to Him is impossible because I'm trapped in the body. And so now for it feels like a person who wants to live one life but is legally, but is like legally bound up in another life and just is stuck there. Does that sound pleasant? No. Okay. I'm going to use a different analogy. Um, what is it like if you realize that if you feel like the need to like be independently wealthy, but you're not? Like you really feel the need to be independently wealthy. Like you need that life, but you're not. Does that feel very good? No. That puts a lot of, you have a lot of internal pressure to break out of that. Okay. Now, if you feel the need to be independently wealthy, right? And you live, let's say in a feudal society and you're a peasant, you're really trapped, right? Because what are you supposed to do? And the answer is nothing. What if you don't live in a feudal society? What if you live in like a market economy like we have? Then you have, I would say, the opportunity. But you have to do what? You have to discover it first, right? You discover what the opportunities would be. You have to look for those opportunities. And when you find them, because you have that need, what do you do? You throw yourself into that. So it's not your, it's the thing, you're not, this kind of person doesn't have to push themselves to work, right? They're driven. The question is just how, right? That makes sense? Go back to the, the, the God forbid, the, 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 the um, deserted wife. If the deserted wife finds a way of luckily escaping her situation, does she need to be motivated to go do it? No, because she doesn't want to stay in that situation, right? So now, there is a way, by the way, to cleave to Hashem, even though you're trapped in a body. What would that way be? Poverty? No. Mitzvahs. Mitzvahs. We're going to come back maybe and talk about why davening not and mitzvahs yes, but and what cleaving means, like all those things need to be explained. But I just want to get the general flow of how this, what this looks like. Um, I have a question. Yeah. At what point did it turn, did it, or did it yet turn into an actual motion? I'm, I'm specifically not going to answer that right now. I will come back to that. <laughs> I intentionally did not do that. Okay. But you are, you are correct in observing that there was some sleight of hand going on. And yeah, how I'm I, like yes. trying to break it up in my notes, but I'm right. trying to figure out that next break. Yeah. And no thought of theirs can grasp him at all. There's no way you can really truly grasp Hashem in your own mind, except when the soul grasps Hashem invested in the Torah and the commandments in the example of embracing the king mentioned above, as was described earlier in Tanya, that through mitzvahs you can actually embrace Hashem. Therefore, it is proper for them to embrace them, meaning different levels of their soul, to embrace them with their whole heart, soul, and might, with the means of fulfillment of the 613 commandments in act, speech, and thought, the last being comprehension and knowledge of the Torah as explained above. So the person who develops sense is like, I need to cleave to Hashem. I cannot cleave to Hashem in my mind. What is the, but I, there is a way for me to cleave to Hashem. What is the way for me to cleave to Hashem? Through the performance of mitzvahs, whether mitzvahs in thought, speech, or deed. Okay? And so now, who needs to do mitzvahs? This person needs, feels the need to do mitzvahs, right? 
like the person who needs to be wealthy. And so they're running, and now they've opened their business, they're running their business, and they are emotionally invested in? Well, depends, yeah. In, in, in connection to Hashem, which once you have this awareness of how mitzvahs are the only opportunity available to truly cleave to Hashem, whatever that means, then you are personally invested in mitzvahs, right? So now, is it correct to say that you're doing mitzvahs out of a love for Hashem? Love meaning I want to be close to someone and this brings me close to it. Yeah. Okay. Then it would be personally investing in Hashem and mitzvahs are just a tool when I get there. Well, I'm, I'm not... Remember how I discussed in the previous class when we talked about mitzvahs that mitzvahs are Hashem becoming present in our life? So I wouldn't say that me going out for dinner with my wife is a tool for me to have relationship with her. I would say me going out to my wife is an instance of us having a relationship. You see the difference? It's a concrete... It's a concrete manifestation of what I desire. It's not a means to the thing I desire, right? Maybe like searching for a restaurant is a means to that, right? What would be a good restaurant to go to or something? Preferably a kosher one. Okay. Um, I'm gonna keep reading because I wanna get the flow of the general idea, right? Even though I said, like, there's some stuff that we could go back and, and analyze, and we might do that a little bit later. Consequently, when the Baini ponders the subject in the recesses of his mind and, and heart's understanding with the unanimity, unanimity of mouth and heart, meaning what? The person's contemplated this so much so that what has happened, this has become their opinion, this is how they feel in their heart, and this is how they are actually acting, right? That the... the and that he upholds by word of mouth that which has been resolved in the understanding of his heart and mind. Like a person who really needs to be wealthy, so they look for a business opportunity, they find a business opportunity, and they actually go and do what? Open the business and run the business, right? Namely, to direct his desire toward the divine Torah, meditating on day and night in the oral study while his hands and other bodily organs carried the commandments in accordance with the resolution of his heart and mind's understanding. Okay. What does that add? What? Well, because what we said before was in the contemplation. We all know that there's an interesting thing that can happen, which is you can be in one state of mind when the thing is theoretical and an entirely different state of mind when you, right? For instance, um, a person can get to the, can feel like it's something is really important, right? And then they actually get into the doing of it and they lose a sense of how important it was, right? So what is he saying? Not that you have it, but that this contemplate, this has created a kind of resolve within the person that sticks with them as they actually go through life studying Torah, doing mitzvahs. Now, can we just stop for a second? Is there any place where this like clearly just shifted in a very obvious way from an intellectual comprehension to an emotion? Yeah. Like where's the point at which it shifted? Consequently. What? Which line would you say is the point at which it stopped being intellectual comprehension and became an emotion? But isn't that something you have to be aware of? And you have to sense that this is how I need to live and this is what I need for myself? Let's go back. What's an example of a person going from intellectual to emotional? So if you are trying to understand something calmly and it's complicated and it's nuanced, right? You're clearly being intellectual about it, right? Rational about it, right? One second, just one second. When you, when you start screaming up and down, you want an example? 
when I teach in the seminaries, and for some reason, because I don't know how they're supposed, they're supposed to have their phones, but someone finds out in the middle of class that someone's sister just got engaged, <laughs> like learning goes out the window. Why? Because everyone just went from whatever intellectual state they might have been to a purely emotional state, right? Have we seen any kind of shift like that in this description? Or is it more like a gradual, like, we started off talking about contemplation. There was kind of this, this emotional conclusion and we started fleshing out that conclusion in how you live your life, a resolve to live your life, actually living your life. There is some sense it has become emotional without it really, like, it shifted, like, boom, it went from, like, I'm this contemplative state, and now I enter in this highly intense emotional state. Do you know why? Maybe it's not that stark. It's not that stark because the line that separates between the emotions within the intellect and the intellect and the emotions, the line that separates between the love that's hidden in one's brain and the love that's hidden in one's, one's heart is not such a strong line. Let me give you an example. If the teacher is explaining something and the student is really listening, in that dynamic, is there really such a stark contrast between what the teacher is saying and what the student is listening, is what the student is understanding? Now, it's true what the teacher knows might be far greater than what they're explaining. And it's true that the student's reaction to what they've understood might be something totally different. But in as much as if the teacher is doing a good job of explaining to the student, the student's doing a good job of paying attention to the teacher, what the teacher's explaining, what the student's understanding is more or less the same, right? It's kind of smooth. So what is happening here is, right? Because we're not talking about the visceral, intentional, emotional thing. We're talking about the, the core essence of an emotion, which is how I feel towards something, right? How I'm driven towards something. What ends up happening is that the contemplation almost becomes a kind of a personal conviction. Without it ever having, like, when we remember we spoke up previously, how that, in, that, that intensity builds the contemplation until you can no longer take it, and then poof, you become, like, very emotional. That's not what's happening. We're describing something else. The person's contemplating, reaching a certain conclusion, and that conclusion starts to sink in, sink into the point it becomes a personal attitude, a personal perspective, personal conviction, something, a, a, a real drive and motivation, and not just something that sticks with them in the moment, but becomes something deeply resolved in them that carries through and how they live their life throughout the day and weeks coming forward. So did it become emotional? <clears throat> if I'm thinking about what emotion is, how I feel and what's driving me, then yes, did it become an emotional experience? And so the question is like, how did that happen? Like, So, for this, I want to talk about two Hebrew words, okay? Um, which, if you go in the Hebrew text, you'll see these words show up. There's a word called bina, and there's a word called tavuna. Okay, now, which, what, those of you who, who know anything about Hebrew grammar should immediately notice that what do bina and tavuna have in common? Ben. What? Yeah, they both have the same, the same basic root. Okay. Bina, I'm sure everyone's heard before, Bina means understanding, yes? And what is Tavuna? Does anyone know what Tavuna is? Understanding. Yes. Let us have a discussion about language for a moment. There are many words in many languages which are synonyms. Okay. Synonyms serve two very important purposes. One purpose is that the use of synonyms allows you to not sound boring and repetitive all the time, right? Remember that, like learning in school to write, and they say, maybe you should use a different word for this because you just use the same word over and over, it's like hard to read? Or you're copying something. Right. 
Um, but synonyms actually allow for something else, which is what if you have the same thing, but there are different shades of meaning or different ways you want to get at what's, what's more or less a generally the same thing. It's helpful to have two words which kind of generally mean the same things, but each one can adopt its own unique angle or perspective. And so you see this all the time. There's like a lot of popular speakers, you know, rabbis, rabbitsons, secular speakers. They'll say like, we're going to have a class about the difference between shame and guilt. <coughs> Do you know what shame and guilt are synonyms, broadly speaking? I feel guilty, I feel shame. Could those more or less be used as synonyms? However, is there, are there maybe some very important distinctions with different psychological reactions to failure that we might want to differentiate? And if it's helpful to have two words which generally mean the feeling of negativity towards my failure, but, but more specifically are very different from each other and we'll label one guilt and one shame. By the way, this creates an annoying thing. What if I give you a whole class explaining the difference between guilt and shame? And then you go to someone else and they give you a whole class explaining the difference between guilt and shame, but they use shame the way I use guilt and they, they use guilt the way I use shame. It's very confusing, right? Because the answer is basically is the person reflects on themselves and has a sense that there's two different senses. There's two kinds of negative feelings in regard to failure. It's not just negativity in the response to my own failure. There is a difference. And so you want to find two different words to so keep track of that, right? But there's no guarantee that the wording I arrive on, the wording you arrive on is gonna be the same thing when then we have these debates, like we just had about responsibility, right? Make sense? Okay, now it is true that in Torah, because Hebrew is the divine language and therefore there is an infinite amount of connections and meaning and all of the, and everything, it's not arbitrary. But it is important to realize this. So if I were to just like, if I were to read a text and it said Tavuna, I would just say Tavuna means understanding. Bina means understanding. But if I saw a text that contrasted the two, right, it wasn't treating the message, it was trying to use the difference in language to get at a difference, I would have to say apparently there's two different kinds of understanding. And I might want one, two different words in English for that as well, right? At that point. Does this make sense? Okay. Um, by the way, whenever you're learning anything in Torah and you see synonyms, you should always ask yourself, is the text using these two words, the, 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 the straightforward meaning of the text, is the text using these two words in such a way that it's drawing a distinction between them? Or it just uses two words what seems to be in context for the same thing and I should just like treat it as just rhetorical and move on. You right? see how that's... And obviously you could then say maybe on a deeper level it does mean two different things. So it's a judgment call on what level you want to learn. Okay, what's the difference between your soul? Uh, let's use Hebrew. What's the difference between your nefesh and your neshama? You have this idea clear. What's the difference between your nefesh and your neshama? What's a nefesh? Soul. What's a neshama? Soul. So what's the difference between your nefesh and your neshama? It depends on context, depends who's using the words, right? Sometimes the same person might use nefesh and neshama in the same text to refer to the same thing just because they're not, they want it, don't want it to sound boring, right? It could be that what one, being called, one writer calls nefesh as opposed to neshama, the other one's reversed. For instance, in Kabbalah, the word neshama, when contrasted with the word nefesh, generally connotes a higher level. In the Rambam's writings, it's reversed. Which is, you should know this about language. It's just an important thing to know. Okay, good? So, how many types of understanding do we have? We have two types of understanding in Hebrew. One is labeled Bina and one is labeled Tavuna. Okay? So now, remember when you were learning to write in middle school or whatever, their teacher told you about compare and contrast? Why do you compare before you contrast? 
Why do we do that? Why do we compare before we contrast? Why is it compare contrast? Why is it not contrast and compare? How about the contrast too? To know what you're contrasting? To know what you're contrasting? Well, I just said, these two things are going to contrast. <clears throat> Why do I have to compare first? I mean, I don't have to compare first. Okay, we'll play a little bit of a game. Okay, but this game requires honesty. All right? I want you to tell me. Okay, the, the way this game works is you have to think, you have to be honest about the first thing that comes to mind, okay? But I have no way of knowing that the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, I want you to tell me the difference between a fork and a spoon. What was the first thing that came to mind? Sharp. Sharp, okay, fine. I want you to tell me the difference between a bowl and a cup. Wide. Okay. I want you to tell me the difference <coughs> first thing I'm sorry, between a horse and a person. Animal. Four legs. What? Four legs, animal. Four legs. Man of legs. Anyone mm-hmm. have anything that really came to mind? What? Animal. Animal. Okay, right. I want you to tell me the difference between a cockroach and God. First thing that came to mind, please. What's the first thing that came to mind? Um. That was the first thing that came to mind? <laughs> <laughs> The first thing that came to mind is the difference between cockroach yeah, and God. Was, what is the first thing that comes to mind as the difference between cockroach and God? Small. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. What? First thing that sounds wrong, but the same. What? The same? Yeah, some of you have heard this before. Okay, the thing is like this. If you re- what? what? Let's go through the first thing. Why did you say sharp when you talked about the fork? There's a few things you could have used, but why sharp? You think of the problems. Back to the same where the you don't know why we thought about. Mm. No, actually, no. Th- this actually, no. Th- so th- this is. I don't necessarily. Think, this is. You, this is actually something you can understand. You can figure out why. Because forks and spoons are fundamentally similar. So what your mind does is immediately try and find an obvious difference, right? Cups and spoons are fundamentally different. fundamentally different. Cups and, bowls. Cup, cu- cups and bowls are fundamentally, right? What your mind, the way your mind does is first it groups them together and then looks for what's an obvious. So some people, when I asked about the horse and the person, some people immediately went to imagery. I can see both, how do they look different? Some people went to categorization, one's an animal, one's not, right? But you, you, you kind of group them and then look for the difference. Now, here's what's the problem with God and a cockroach, which is? They're very different. So the first thing that your mind does is goes like that. And then, the, right, deep down. And then what your mind does is, well, I have to have an answer. And so just pick some random thing about a cockroach, which is obviously not true about God, and settles on that. It's in, it's in doing an entirely different mental process. Right? In other words, like, the difference you came up with a fork and with a cup and with a person, they are... I'm gonna say significant differences. They really get at something that differentiates them, right? Spoons are not good for stabbing in a way that forks are, but they're used to eat food, so it's very, right? Um, cups and bowls are basically the same thing, but because of the differences in shape, they, you know, it makes it like, one is better for drinking, one is better, right? right? Is really like, if you really want to understand something about what differentiates God and a cockroach, one is brown, is like kind of silly, right? But for that matter, almost anything you would have said would have been rather silly, right? It's like, oh, what, God is green? Oh, it has cockroaches six legs. What, and God is eight, right? Cockroaches, like, 
You see what I'm saying? You, you end up picking with something which differentiates just because you're kind of grabbing at anything. A contrast which is meaningful is in light of a fundamental comparison. That's how our human minds work. That makes sense? So if I wanted to tell you the difference between Bina and Tavuna, between these two different things, what do I first have to do? Make sure we're clear of what we mean by understanding in general and then to differentiate them. This is a thing a lot of people don't do is they immediately go to the difference between things without necessarily having a clear sense of why we're even grouping them together to begin with. And therefore the difference ends up becoming like a cockroach god difference. It's a technically true that that's a difference between them, but it doesn't really help you. Okay? Um, so often this happens, like a bachur will come to me and ask me a question, like Chassidus or Gemara, they'll say, I, I don't understand, how's the, like, how did, this versus this, I say, wait, 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 why are we even talking about these things in the same sentence? What made you group them together to begin with? And then we can go from there. Okay, so understanding. Yeah, what is understanding? Well, I mean, we are all pretty clear that understanding is a mental process that we engage in, right? And it's within the realm of the intellectual stuff, right? But what understanding is about is about being able to grab a hold of something. Okay, so let me explain to you what I mean. Using an analogy, physically speaking, when you look at something, you will have you have a sense of it, but only while you're looking at it. The minute you turn your way from it, you don't see it anymore, right? But if you can hold something, then you can walk away with it. Make sense? There's a huge difference. Now, is it true that when you're holding something, you're getting at it in a, in a certain sense in a much more superficial way? You're just getting at the shape of it. You don't really have a sense of its beauty or whatever, right? It's like, the, you know, it, it, you know, for instance, um, give me an example. My phone, right? If I just hold the phone, right, and I wasn't looking at it, I just said, okay, there's something about this big, it's smooth over here, right? Right, when you see something, you have a sense of it in a very, very clear way. So in our mind, we have these two different faculties. One is called Chachma, one is called Mina. Chachma is our ability to be open to the truth of things, to see the truth of things, to have the truth present itself, have that kind of awareness. It's a beautiful thing. Where a lot of things come, curiosity, creativity, um, wisdom, etc., etc., etc. But here's the problem with that: Can you walk away with that? Do you really have that? Do you use your mind, you, you, you don't have like, these really used to feelings words like grasping something. In bina, the mind is trying to do it. The mind is trying to hold on to something, and so to hold on to something, it has to make it small enough that it can hold. And also, you ever tried to hold something that's too big? You can't hold it, right? It has to be small enough. But you can have the problem also that if it's, if it's too smooth, it's too slippery, right? So if something has to be small enough and contoured enough for you to physically hold, right? Same thing with your mind. If you really want to grasp and you really want to hold onto it in your mind, what do you need to do? You need, you need to break it down to size and have, it be, have enough specifics, enough details, enough things that you can really grab hold of it. And so what your mind is doing is trying to take hold of something rather than simply be aware of something. That's what you're doing when you're understanding. And what happens as you understand, you feel like more and more you have mastery over it because you possess it. That makes sense? That describes more or less what happens when we try to understand things? 
Okay. So how are there two kinds of understanding? I mean, understanding is just a question of like, do I grasp it? Do I not grasp it? Do I have it? Do I not have it? Right? Do I have a gain mastery over it? Do I have a not gain mastery over it? Okay. So, um, I will tell you a Jewish joke. Now, I, I don't know if you'll find it funny, but um, I'm not telling you for, for the humor value. I'm telling you, A, because it's helpful for this point, and B, it's an important insight into Jewish culture, or religious culture. What is the difference between a Rosh Yeshiva and a Rav? Rosh Yeshiva is a Torah scholar who runs a Yeshiva, and a Rav is a Torah scholar who decides practical halacha. What is the difference between them? The answer is like this. If the Rosh Yeshiva discovers that his novel Insight was already written in a book by someone else, he's very disappointed. But if the Rav discovers that his novel Insight was written in a book that came before him, he's very relieved. What's the Rosh Yeshiva trying to do? He's studying the Talmud, he's studying the, the, the Torah. What is he trying to do? He's trying to understand it. Right? Why is he trying to understand it? What's the value in understanding it? What's the value in playing music? Presenting to others. No. That's circular. But I'm saying with the teacher. I'm not, I'm a Russia, most Rosh Hashivas aren't too busy teaching. Teaching is like another thing. <laughs> what's the, what, what's, you, you might be teaching, but it's not. What's the value in playing music? To enjoy it. Yeah, music, in other words, music doesn't have you tell, music, the value of music is in music. Now, there's definitely a value in, there's something, there's something wonderful in being, in listening to music, but it's an entirely different experience to play music, right? Anyone here play music? Yeah. But it's a different experience, right? Like there's something else. So as amazing as it is, is to understand Torah, it's an entirely different experience to generate your own understanding of Torah, right? And what's the Rosh Hashiva, someone who devotes his life to generating his? own understanding of Torah, and then shares that with others and hopefully teaches them to generate their own understandings of Torah, right? And so if he discovers that his own understanding is not really his own understanding, it kind of like takes away from it. It's like imagine composing a piece of music, putting your heart and soul into it, and then discover you just like accidentally came upon Shakespeare, or, or, or upon Bach. Like it would kind of like, you feel like, what do you mean? I just like, Shakespeare's the wrong genre, right? You see, like, it, it, it would feel weird. Why is the Rav, why is the, the rabbi who... Why is he involved in studying of Torah? What? No. He needs to know the answer. Why does he need to know the answer? Why? 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 You're like, you're not saying the actual substantive thing. At the end of the day, is there such a being? That's right. At the end of the day, there's a being called God. And it really matters to God whether or not you do or don't do something, right? And somebody, whether it's you or another person, really doesn't know, is God okay with this? And the only way to figure that out is to engage the Talmudic texts. So they're both trying to understand, but are they, trying to, are they engaging understanding in remotely the same way? One sees understanding as like a... An end in of itself. Generating your own understanding is a rewarding experience. That itself connects you to Hashem. That itself is meaningful. The other one's like, understanding? Who cares about understanding? The question is, are you crossing a line with God if you eat this food? 
does God require me to do this or doesn't? Like, that's the issue. And if the only way I can get to that is engaging in, 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 in the process of study to come to some understanding, then I have to do that. So the, the understanding is, is, there's no value in the understanding for understanding. The value is because understanding is the only way I can get at the thing which is important, which is knowing that I am doing right by the will of God or someone else is doing the right by the will of God. Those are two very different mindsets, right? So if the rabbi finds out that his conclusions are the conclusions of people who came before him, that makes him feel very relieved, right? He feels like he's on the right track. See the difference? Okay. Good? Okay. Let's talk more about the difference, though. When what drives your understanding is the value of understanding something, how personally connected are you to that <coughs> thing? So here's the thing we need to think about people. Are people just their intellectual drive? No. So which part of you, right? They were not just that, right? So, it, it, so which part of a person would see understanding as a value in and of itself? The intellectual part of the person, right? Which part of the person would see, let's go back to the example of knowing whether or not they're, they're, they're in alignment with the will of God as a valuable thing. Is that a specific part of the person or is that, again, assuming that you're kind of a religious mindset about things, or that is like a fundamental thing about life in general? You see there's a difference here? So, if I care about something and that is what's driving my understanding. Understanding is not really what it's about. It's about getting a better handle on because I need to know something about it in order for me to live my life. That's one kind of understanding. Then there's another kind of understanding where there's a part of me, emphasis on the word part, that finds tremendous fulfillment through understanding. That's a different thing, right? Okay. Bina is the part of us that finds fulfillment through understanding. Could you please repeat that? Bina is the part, Bina, when we contrast it with this word Tavuna, is the part of us that finds fulfillment through understanding. So it's, there's a part of us which is intellectual, it gets fulfillment through understanding, and so it wants to understand things as fully as possible. And the more it understands, the more it generates its own understanding, the more fulfilled we feel on that level. Thank you. Tavuna is the opposite. Tavuna is what? Is that I need to understand something, not because I need to understand it at all, but because if I don't understand it, I don't have a full grasp of it. If I don't have a full grasp of it, it's going to mess me up because I need, I need it in some way in my life. Okay. Do you know why many people don't like being doctors? Many people who are interested in biology don't like being doctors? What do you need to do if you're a doctor? Uh. What? <laughs> yeah, other, than, before, other than math. Like actual practice medicine. If you're going to actually practice medicine, what do you need to do? Someone comes to you, they have a problem, right? 
What do you need to do? That's the end goal. What do you need to do? You need to just, you need to diagnose right, and and then prescribe a course of treatment right. Like at the end of the day, no one is coming to you to be like an interesting case study in bio, biological exploration. They're coming to you because they have a health problem they want fixed, right? And so what you need to do is to figure out what's their problem and tell them how to fix it. To fix it. Um, what if you're wrong? They could die. That's right. <laughs> do you have perfect knowledge? That's right. So you have to achieve a level of comfort of it's really important for me to have the, a, 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 a best, reasonable, the most reasonable diagnosis and the most reasonable right, course of treatment, right? Because I really, really care about the helping the person and I'm willing to take the risk of maybe getting it wrong because sitting by the wayside is going to be a, that's just worse, right? And if that means I have to at some point just make a judgment call that this seems more reasonable than that and go with it, then I'm going to do that, right? That's, a, that, 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 that's putting your intellectual curiosity um, and your sense of safety um, on the side in order to like, you're subordinating your mind to something else. You don't have, you don't just explore and think about whatever you want. You have to come down to some kind of conclusion. You have to stand by that conclusion. It's a very different mindset than the person who's just like interested in the you know, exploration of biology, right? Okay? So a person, who's a, who, a person who goes to the medical school and ends up just going into research, they're more comfortable using their Bina. Someone, who's, someone who goes into being an ER, surgeon, an ER doctor, very comfortable with Tavuna. See the difference? They're very different parts of the mind in terms of understanding. When you are learning Hasidus, which part, which mindset you should you try to use? Bina. No. Bina. Because if you're learning and you're if you're learning, the goal should be to have as rich and as deep and as a understanding as possible. You want to get a full One second. When you are contemplating what you have learned in Hasidus, what mindset should you be using? You know what happens if you try to do Tavuna while you're supposed to do Bina? You don't get anywhere because you don't have enough to work with. You know what happens if you never move to Tavuna? You stay in that place of exploration and there's another side and there's another angle. It's all very interesting, but somehow it never ever touches you and never has an impact on you. What we're describing a person who's contemplating with Tavuna and what we're going to see is that Tavuna itself almost becomes like you know like how black and white are very different, but gray is gradual? Tavuna is kind of like the gray between the intellect and the emotion. The more and more the Tavuna, you enter into that Tavuna mindset, you kind of shift from the emotions and the intellect gradually into a sense of the intellect of the emotion. In fact, That's Tavuna. Yeah. It, it, that, the Tavuna mindset does that. It just, it, it, in fact, it actually says in the Hebrew, um, where is it? 
he calls, he says, when he says that line in, in the English, um, consequently, when he ponders the subject, the recess of his mind and heart descending, uh, where is it? Um, the... That which has been resolved in the understanding of his heart and mind, the Hebrew word there for understanding is tevunas, the tevuna of his mind and his heart. Okay? So what we're describing is somebody, right? They're not just engaged in some sort of like contemplation, exploration. What they're saying is like, I know, even before I engage in this contemplation, that it's really important for me to have a sense of the greatness of God. That's important. And therefore, I'm contemplating with that aim, right? Like the doctor, right, who needs to diagnose the patient, like the rabbi who needs to come to a ruling. And as that, what happens in that contemplation is it goes from broader and more sophisticated to narrower, to clearer, to deeper, to more profound, to eventually becomes a personal conviction. It becomes a drive, it becomes a resolve, it becomes a motivation, it becomes something which is very clearly emotional. On the other hand, somebody who just spends a lot of time thinking about the ideas, will they ever get to what we're describing here? They will not. So would it be correct to say that us learning Tanya is Tabuna mindset? No, no. What you do after with what you learn, hopefully, is Tabuna. Because if you try to do this, then what, what you guys, by the way, are very good, um, is that you... Um, just as a group you're very good um, some groups are not as good is people will often say like, well, well how am I supposed to apply this what am I supposed to do with this how am I supposed to use this in my life right if those are the things that you keep coming to very very quickly does it help the learning process or shuts it down but once you've learned something very very well and then you're coming at it with that trying to understand it from that perspective now you're entering into the Tavuna mindset and that's, that's what this person is doing and when you engage in that kind of contemplation there really is a gradual progression from the intellectual to the emotional. Now that presupposes you really have understood the thing in kind of on its own terms, right? You don't like start diagnosing patients without having gone to medical school and knowing they can do about anatomy, right? Hopefully. Right? Before you start rescuing halachic rulings, you better have a full grasp of the Talmudic discussions and, 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 and nuances involved, right? But you're not staying in the exploration of those things. In contrast... Remember the first person we spoke about contemplating? That first person may not necessarily even need to enter into a mindset because the mere fact, I want to give you an example. You ever seen a scientist get really excited talking about something? You ever see like an interview and they just like, they seem giddy and childlike? Did they go through a Tavuna, are they in a Tavuna mindset? Like you see like some of the astrophysicists and they're still talking about the universe and the Big Bang and like they sound like a kid in a candy store. Like what is going on? What's going on is this, the reality of this thing is so resonant with their soul that when their mind is engaged with it, it kind of builds that pressure and then it has an effect on their emotions, right? So there's one kind of contemplation where you're just contemplating the greatness of Hashem, you're contemplating the greatness of Hashem and the fact that your mind is engaged with Hashem keeps... It just puts that kind of, it starts creating that emotional pressure. And eventually, as I said, that, that pressure bursts. And you, this is talking about something different, is that you're from the outset thinking about it in a different way. You're contemplating it in a different way, a way that is trying to get at how this is truly relevant. And in doing so, it goes from an idea to a truth to a, 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 a conviction and a, and, 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 a, and a value and a, and, and a drive and a motivation 
And so you, you, you traverse the distance between the intellect and the emotion almost without realizing it. But the downside of this is you don't actually become very emotional. On the other hand, the more developed soul, the mere fact that they dedicate time to like be focused totally on God, that itself elicits an emotional response in the person. Okay, good? Okay, now, here's the thing. Would we say that this person, as we've described him, are they any less devoted to Hashem? Are they any less personally invested in connecting to Hashem than the person who's like having a very visceral muscle experience? Is there any difference on that level? Or is the difference just simply that one is feeling something very intensely in their body and the other one is not? Go back to the example of a person running their business. A person running their business, right? Just because they're not jumping through the roof every time they see that they made a sale and every time, just because they're not crying every time that the expenses were more than they expected, does that mean they're not personally invested? No. What is the result of like, No, that's gonna be key. The result, the action, that's what he says, the, re- the action's not gonna be different. A person who deeply cares about their business may not be feeling very emotional, but they're taking care of their business. They're on top of everything. So what's really the difference then between how the person, um, how the person does the mitzvahs or not. Right? Then they're, they're do, both people are devoted, both people are committed, both people are personally invested, both people care. Just one's heart is fluttering, one is, is all giddy and the other one's not. It'll be but, harder for one of them? No. So for this, what I wanna do is I wanna just briefly describe and then we'll continue with the idea next week. The issue that we're gonna see is like this. It's not enough to do mitzvahs. Mitzvahs need what he's gonna call later wings, okay? Um, Basically what this means is as follows. Um, let's imagine someone is giving you a present because they really care about you. Does it matter whether their hand trembles when they hand it to you or not? Is the answer, it doesn't matter at all? The answer is, it, it, it's, it's really important or it matters in some sense. If a person really cares about you and they're giving you a gift because they care about you but their hand doesn't tremble, does that mean they don't really care about you? Does that mean the act of giving the gift is not a valuable thing? No. But if when they're giving you the gift, their hand trembles as they give you the gift, does that change somehow the quality of that moment? It turns it from something which is, its meaning can be appreciated to its meaning is actually experienced, right? So here's the thing, there's a very big difference if you do a mitzvah because you desire to be close to Hashem, you really care, you need to be close to Hashem. And so you're doing the mitzvah because that's what you need to do. That's a very meaningful thing in terms of its content. That's very different if you're, if you're so, you feel so enthralled with Hashem that your hand literally is shaking with the awareness that you're about to connect to Hashem when you light Shabbos candles. That's a very different kind of mitzvah, right? And the question is, like, Okay, how important is that difference? And if you can't get to that place, can you compensate for that in some way? 
Okay? The difference is not, will I do the mitzvah? The difference is not how much I care. The difference is the quality of the doing, the quality of the act of the mitzvah is different when I'm doing something out of personal conviction, personal drive, personal investment, versus I'm doing something because I'm very emotional. Okay? Um, it's better? It's definitely better. And we'll talk, we'll talk next week, we'll go into why it's better and why the altar says it's in the world if you can't get to that. But there's something very different, okay? And, and by the way, it's the same. It, 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 it. Have you ever imagine imagine um, imagine you were watching a movie where everybody did all the things that were in the script and they said all the words that were in the script. And imagine that they were that like you could see that they'd read the script, they'd understood the script, they identified with the character, they're really putting in their all, but. It came out all dry. Would that be an engaging movie to watch? Right? Like when the person is saying something which is embarrassing, you want to have a sense of the embarrassment coming through the words, right? When a person is doing something that they've been longing to do, you want to have a sense of how that longingness is coming through their physicality, right? Otherwise it doesn't feel alive. And so the issue that we're going to learn is in terms of feeling connected to Hashem and devoted and invested and have a personal interest in the mitzvahs and wanting to do the mitzvahs and the drive and doing, like all of that you can get without that, that physical emotionality. But at the end of the day, the doing of the mitzvah becomes something you do rather than something you live, you don't live in the actual experience of the mitzvah. And the question is, okay, well, why is that so important? And is there any way to, to compensate for that? Right? Because the point is that what's missing is the external part of the emotion, that, that physicality, which affects not my drive to do something, not how important it is for me to do something, but the quality of the actual action. Again, think about a child who's excited to do something. They walk differently towards that thing. They don't even walk. They run, they skip, they hop, right? So ask yourself a question. After all of the contemplation, does my... Is it, if, would, an, would a bystander seeing me put on tefillin, seeing me light a Shabbos candle, seeing me go do a mitzvah, would they see this is a person who is in what they're doing so much so it's, you, can see the, you can see it in the physicality or it's, no, it's a, right? That's, that's the difference where this type of contemplation doesn't get to and the other kind does because this is coming through that process of how tevuna becomes something that slides naturally from the mind into the heart smoothly, gradually. And so it becomes a conviction, it becomes a devotion, it becomes a motivation, but it never becomes passion. That's kind of the bottom line. Does this make sense? Questions? No questions. So either it's all understood or you haven't come up with your questions yet. We'll go off the ladder. Okay, next week, I'm not sure, I might wanna go back and touch on some of the details that I went over to just get the basic flow of the idea, or we might go forward I haven't decided how much time I want to spend on this, but that, that's, what, that's where we're going with this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Does, does this kind of thing seem achievable? Mm -hmm. What?